here's what happened. At Ansons, we advocate for this position, this posture of the student. You'll also notice if you're in the Ransom Tart orbit, that's popular lingo. But it's committing yourselves as an apprentice, if you've read the Ansons About page, to various disciplines. You're learning. This becomes a major issue when John Dale, who is a guiding strategist for the Ansons team, comes into your office yesterday morning and just kind of begins to rip into the way that learning and student are constructed and defined in our moment, in the world we occupy. Right, because we were talking about um, some studies about the mind, the brain, technology, screens, and all of that, because uh, Padre has been thinking about ways that psychology is able to identify our need of nature and our need to separate from the artificial. And that's all kind of beginning to percolate in the world series that happened on the Ransom Heart podcast a while ago. But one of the the studies was this this small piece on like, they've finally been able to quantify the fact that if trivial information is available to us all the time, then we begin to not value that anymore, which is fine. Like that for most people, you don't need to know the elevation of every pass between here and the ski resorts in Breckenridge. Um, Blaine could probably rattle them off to you, but I could not without using Google. 11,542 feet. Who's your pass? There you go. I would put that in my mental recycling bin and sort of smile at the crumpled paper noise. Uh, There's probably a case to be made for within your trade it becomes no longer trivial information, becomes useful information. But it was a conversation we were having and it began to open outward into the conversation around education and like what's actually a valuable skill set that we should be teaching and what are the things that schools are teaching and what are the things that we need to be developing as people who are meant to be curious and creative and not just... Uh, hands and button pushers of the machine of the industrial revolution in 2018. So it's interesting, right? Like we kind of just, these are the conversations that we have. And now we're recording some of our thoughts. So John, what's the problem with education? Where to start? I I think it's fascinating, right? So I've got four kids, our oldest Anna uh, is in university now over in the UK and uh, is just loving it. She's studying animation and visual effects and um, just having like a grand old time, getting to explore the things that she is passionate about. And then I've got like our son Eli and he's 15 and school is not his favorite thing. And I, I can understand that. Like I look and... You know, our other kids, Eli's homeschooled. Our other kids go to a private school here in town, which we love. It's a great school. Um, But like last night, our daughter, Shay, um, literally was doing homework from the time she got home. She took a short break for dinner and got done at almost 11 o'clock at night. And if she were an adult and she brought her work home and worked on it through dinner till 11 o'clock at night, we would accuse her of being a workaholic and say it was incredibly unhealthy. But when we look at our kids, you know, with the hours and hours of homework that they're given, um, we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what they should be doing. 
it's fascinating. And it did bring us back yesterday in that conversation to why is education the way it is? And, you know, my friend Seth Godin, uh, he wrote this ebook that's out there. You guys can find it called Stop Stealing Dreams about the education system. Um, and in that, he talks about why we do education the way we do. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, the schools, the way we have them now, they didn't really exist until the Industrial Revolution, at which point we had these factories that we needed workers for. And so we needed to create a system that would produce workers who would show up for an eight or 12 hour shift and do the same repetitive task over and over again without complaining only going to the bathroom at certain times, all these different things. And so they said, like, what's the best way that we could create these workers? And they came up with the school systems as we know them today. And what's fascinating, though, is- Wait, 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 no, no, no. That's real? Like, we need to- This isn't a conspiracy theory of, like, the Illuminati kind of controlling society and just wanting to make little worker bees to- I'm going to defer to Blaine for actual facts. Let me just say- Good interjection, Sam, because it it sounds like we're just sitting here affirming everybody who has been in high school's misgivings about high school. You're just turning me into a drone. Well, that's a fact. If you look at Horace Mann, if you look at the relatively late Horace Mann. Inv- uh, invention that is uh, public schooling, that is common schooling, that these are all different things. And sort of go, when did we shift out of learning uh, the mastery of a trade? I mean, classically, the two things I would point to are Erasmus and the education of a a Christian prince. And I would point to Horace Mann several hundred years later to go, these are the best indicators of what has happened. And you're looking at me like you haven't read it, though I stole the book from you, The Education of a Christian Prince. You learn about it in your college history classes because it's this relevant thing that goes, we need to make someone who can come up all the time with solutions for the conflicts that emerge when people compete over shared resources. The ruler is the one who has to do that. You stole this book from my my stack of history books in college. This explains why I did so poorly. Because <laughs> you never actually read it. I didn't you? have the opportunity I, to, John. I stole your dream. But you go, it's really interesting when you look at how do you train that person? And then fast forward a couple hundred years, it's a helpful tool to say economy shapes culture more than culture shapes economy. This is something that Seth Godin argues, but also every economic geographer and pretty much every economist also argues and goes, you know, when you have the need to organize around a set of shared resources, culture formation happens, right? So if you're in the Industrial Revolution and you really do need people who can do repetitive tasks, who can find answers to problems that people have already found the answer to, and who can do things in sort of this automated fashion, the public school system really was implemented to design that kind of person, And this isn't just pointing fingers at public schools. I mean, private schools follow essentially the same model for the most part. And I think the thing that's interesting about it is that, like, 
the economy has shifted. The thing that the economy values now is not the ability to do repetitive tasks. I mean, anyone that can do repetitive tasks is at risk of having their job replaced by some combination of like computer machine thing, right? Robot. However, what the economy rewards now is people that can be creative. It rewards people that can come up with creative solutions, come up with new ideas, new solutions, figure out ways to solve problems that haven't been solved before. And so where we got to in our conversation yesterday is just this idea that, you know, while I so appreciate the teachers at my kids' school and I love that they're so good at making them follow all the rules. I really don't care what grades my kids get. What I care about is do they come out of their educational experience with the tools that they're going to need to succeed in 2020 and beyond. And I'm, I'm just arguing that following a bunch of rules really, really precisely to the letter isn't actually the most valuable thing. And, and I think that's true for all of us because it's not just about the education system. It's about how do we continue to pursue learning for our entire lives. You know, I didn't, I, I went to high school, chose not to go on to university. Um, and I think one of the things that has differentiated me from some other people that took that same path is that I've chosen to always try and learn. Like I'm, I'm always learning. I'm always looking for opportunities. And it's not that I'm learning just to fill my head with facts. It's that when I learn about one thing, what I love to do is figure out how does the thing I learned over here apply to this thing that's on completely the other side of the table that seems to be unrelated. And it's, it's those type of skills and then relational skills, soft skills, how, do we, how we interact with people. Those are all the things that the economy is saying, hey, if you bring those skills to the table, we'll pay really well for that. Okay, but as a parent, um, it is harder to quantify your child's ability to do those sorts of things. Like, unless you have like a genuine relationship with them and you have like these sort of environments where you can call that out of your kids, their ability to be curious and be creative and, and wrestle with these things. Isn't there some sort of like, I'm, I'm projecting into the future here from what something I think I'm going to wrestle with is... Uh, don't their letter grades make you feel certain ways? And isn't that oh. like a great way of quantifying uh, your success or failure as a parent <laughs> that- and their ability to like be good human beings? Like Shay being an A student, Anna going to university, isn't that like on your kind of uh, report card as yes. well? Yes, yes and no. Part of it is I think a lot of the reason that many parents are so concerned about their kids' grades has very little to do with what's going to be best for the kid and has much more to do with how that reflects on them. So my kid's an honor student, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes that's because they're proud of the kid. A lot of times it's because they're proud that they have an A student. Well, they're right? the ones driving around with the bumper sticker. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. And so um, – I, th- I think we have to go back to, like, w- what are the motives? And so can these things be quantified? You know, how do you know if your kid is doing well? I think you hit the nail on the head. You said that actually requires relationship with your kids. And so I look at some people, and there are, there are kids I know that are straight-A students and are just phenomenal, and they can't have a conversation with me. Like they don't, they don't know how to enter into conversation with an adult. And then there are other kids who might be B 
or C or even failing in school. And yet when it comes to actually interacting with adults, interacting with other human beings, they're, they're phenomenal at that. And so there is absolutely like a place for both. There's a place for all types of intelligence. I'm just throwing out there that, that it isn't all just one size fits all. And when you look at the typical education system with standardized testing, there's this assumption being made that one standard fits all. I have two contributions to make at this point. One is, if you are resistant to any of these concepts, because so far our sort of uh, authoritative voice is the maven Seth Godin, Dallas Willard, 20th century Christian heavyweight, brilliant philosopher, has an incredible explanation of our failure to follow Jesus as teacher. And he goes, the reason is, we have strayed so far in what we think it means to learn. And to make a, make a complex point simple, he simply says, in the world Jesus occupies, you have succeeded in learning the lesson if your life actually changes. And he goes, we come to God with ready to search for answers that are going to be on the test. And what do we need to take away? And okay, so that's right. If someone is beat up, I should be nice to that person. Versus the thing that Jesus is trying to impart is when you get up in the morning, you have no idea who your neighbor is going to be that day. And he is imparting this heart change that results in a verifiable transformation of a person's life. But they're learning if their life changes. You mentioned intelligences here. And we would be remiss in this conversation if we didn't bring in Howard Gardner and the theory of multiple intelligences, a 20th century psychologist who it's funny that we needed him to do what he did, but all he did was raise the flag and say, okay, so intelligences, what they actually seem to be are aptitudes relating to certain skills. And he was pointing out, we filter people based on what intelligence they have and we treat them differently. And the one that we reward is uh, the ability to discern and then memorize test answers more than anything else. Right. It's the um, Einstein quote that I'm going to totally butcher, but you've seen it turn into like a thousand different cartoons of like a fish will feel totally foolish if the test is to climb a tree. Yes. That's super close. And I I feel worse now. If a fish judges its intelligence by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid. Here's the thing, Todd. I, I want to keep that. <laughs> Even though I look like an idiot. <laughs> no, you don't look like an idiot. And maybe let's he keep looks like he did really wanna, well. You know this. what? Maybe let's keep all of this. <laughs> he did really well on the, I can memorize things and put them back on the test thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I was rewarded no, Tell me more about that. this piece about how intelligence isn't necessarily the ability to uh, recite things <laughs> verbatim. Well, okay. But I'm sort of a great opposite example here of having an aptitude for seeing what the question is going to be, what answer do we need to memorize, and memorizing it. And then I finish school and go, I am not any better than anybody else at doing creative work. I'm a lot worse at doing creative work than a lot of people. What has happened? The rest of the Howard Gardner piece says that he goes, there is obviously social and relational and emotional intelligence. There's obviously physical intelligence. And he kind of writes extensively into to frame like aptitude and ability, we we need to take what we've been forced into and really 
begin widening and then ultimately maybe deprecating and getting rid of a system that isn't helpful. The question, though, that I partly had coming to this conversation and 10 minutes ago is, so, you know, you're educating your kids right now. You're, you know, you're playing an active role in the education of your kids. Let's say that like a lot of our listeners, you know, we're all, some of us more than others, but, you know, at least a decade out of the institution that is public education, that is our, in quotes, formal education. There's kind of a, why, why does this matter to the 25, 26, 27 year old who's actually tuning in and going, yeah, I'm, I, I hated high school. You're right. Well, I think it matters for a couple of reasons. One is you're going to have kids one day. And so these are good things to be wrestling with if you don't have kids already. Um, but also because I think if you hated high school and maybe as a result didn't do well there, that's not the verdict on you. And, you know, whether you dropped out of high school or you aced high school and went on to university and higher education, if you will, as your dad says, Blaine, begin to go after desire, like God created each person with aptitudes, with intelligences that are unique to them. And whatever the standardized system said about you isn't the most important thing. It's not the final verdict. I mean, when's the last time that any of you guys had to tell someone what grade you made in your senior year of history? My senior year of history. Right. (laughs) Literally, it literally doesn't matter anymore. And so I, I think... Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what why it matters. However, when I've got kids that are in the midst of it, I am passionate that my daughter, who's 13 and got a D in an assignment because of some silly rules, in my mind, silly rules, that I am there to provide interpretation for her that that isn't the verdict on who she is, on her value, and that I'm able to provide a context for her that helps her to understand that while she may have not fit exactly in that system, that doesn't mean that she's not going to be able to live to her the full potential of who she is. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, there's part of me that the conversation around college and university and kind of the education system is so different. It feels like the same conversation that we're having, but it's, but it's not. Um, and it's one that we're going to have another time because that is very tied into your expectations of work and a certain life pace. And there's been some shifts there for the economy as well. Uh, I think is so important about this conversation is that it's like a fundamental belief of what matters when you shape a person in how they approach the world. Mm-hmm. And that begins back in grade school and kind of runs its course in, in a very boxed sense all the way through high school. And that's why we're kind of putting that cap on it. Um, and the posture and the message that you sort of print on a person and offer them really does have lasting implications and it affects the way that people go to college or university or that they don't. 
to give the example that you already sort of alluded to, you not going, you had very different postures of how you're going to continue to educate yourself, whereas someone who could go to college or university and keep applying the same sort of boxed, this is how X plus Y equals Z mm-hmm. sort of approach to life. Um, it really is this passive uh experience and it ends up being such a massive verdict and it is a massive verdict because I drive around town with all of the moms their honor students and the people that sort of came up with a tongue-in-cheek response of like their dogs being able to like beat the otter solve students problems and, better which is often true <laughs> right like you love that little war that's going on there um would love to have a conversation around like the value and, and sort of the experience of college and university entering into a different life stage um but the one that we're having now is like this piece that you just most recently touched on of your children's value and really your own value and how you approach learning. And I, I, was, I am constantly stunned when I see statistics about like how often people are reading these days and how many books someone might read. But like I fall into that category as well of it being pretty low, um, sometimes zero after high school. All of that is to say. If you had to create a high school curriculum for your kids, like not homeschool, but you were in charge of like a brick and mortar that people were going to send their kids to, and you wanted them to leave knowing that their value is very different than the grade they got, what would be the things that you would try and focus on? Because we, we are wrestling with this as employees and as uh, people that are finding ourselves in the teaching position of like, We've had Jesse on the on the podcast several times, and he works at, or he did work in a uh, classics school. And so we're trying to like answer this question as a society. We're not answering it as parents yet. We're answering it as the teachers. You're answering it as a parent. And so if you had to create the brick and mortar curriculum. First of all, let me just say to any teachers that are listening, because I, th- I think this conversation can kind of sound a little bit anti- traditional education um and like i totally get that most teachers are absolutely passionate about educating kids and care deeply about the kids that they work with and a lot of times are constrained and and are in systems that 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 are unhelpful and are measuring things that make it really difficult for them to to maybe go the directions that their heart would like in, in the way that they they educate kids. Um, so for any teachers, like a huge, huge thank you. And certainly if any of my kids' uh, teachers are listening, big thank you to each of you. Um, but to answer the question, I think that the, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately but w- when it comes to my kids uh, because of Anna going off to university. The thing that I most want my kids to take away from their high school experience is a confidence that they have what it takes to face the real world at that point. And I think that that looks a lot more like giving them problems and teaching them how to figure out how to solve those problems than it does memorizing a bunch of facts and figures. History is one of the subjects that I'm really passionate about and I love history. And it's also one of those subjects that is for most people, 
the love of it is just sucked out of them by high school history because they are taught to memorize a bunch of facts and figures and they completely lose the story that is history. And the valuable lessons from history don't come from the facts and the numbers. They come from the decisions that people made and the impacts they had in the world. And what can we learn from those as we make decisions and we have an impact in the world? And so I I think I would approach each subject asking the question, how can I give this child a love and a passion for this subject. So that even if it isn't something that they pursue long-term, it's something that they take that experience and they take what they've learned and how they've learned to learn and they're able to apply it uh, to everything that they face in the rest of their life. It's interesting because you've done a version of this. And what I'm, you're using a couple key terms, uh, problems and solutions that, you know, when I first met the person that is John Dale and heard some of that language, like a lot of people who came, grew up in the United States, like problems and solutions are sort of like, you know, the the riddle and the answer or like the puzzle and the answer. It's the classic, like the problem is f of x equals something and the solution is what it ends up equaling. So your friend Seth Godin, friends because you've spent quite a bit of time together in New York and dealing with what counts as a problem, how does someone come up with a solution? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by problem and solution or maybe even visit a couple of examples that help clarify what you're talking about? Yeah, so I think let's talk about my time with Seth Godin, because this is a great example of this. You know, I had the privilege of doing a six-month alternative MBA program with Seth back in 2009, where there were 12 of us who spent six months with him every day in his office. And unlike traditional business education, um, what he had us do was tackle real problems and come up with real solutions. So we didn't, for example sit down and take read a book about how to write a business plan, how to come up with a business idea. The very first assignment he gave each of us was to each come up with 100 business ideas. We compiled them together. You can go Google it and find it. And there's this document with 1,200 business ideas. And he published them in this ridiculously long blog post called 1,200 Business Ideas Free for the Taking. And his point was that he wanted us to realize that an idea is a dime a dozen. That where the rubber really meets the road and where you're able to offer value is when you can execute on an idea. And so many people, they have some little idea that they think is so brilliant that they keep it and they hide it and they won't tell anyone about it because they're afraid that someone's going to steal their idea. And he wanted to take all of our best ideas and our really crappy ones like you know, coming up with a cat funeral home and publish them and put them out there and give permission permission to people to take them because the truth is people won't take them because they don't know how to execute on them. And the next thing he did was he said, okay, well, I want you to pick one of those ideas and now I want you to write a business plan. And so we had to write a business plan without the foundation. There was no how to, you know, he didn't give us any of the information, tell us what it was supposed to be like. And then he said, guess what? We're going to have some VC guys come in and talk to you a bit about VC. And uh, I want you guys to each practice pitching your idea. 
And, and, and it was on and on and on like this. One day he takes us out to uh, a cross-country skiing place. It was like the skate skiing. So it's on flat ground and you have to skate. And uh, we took a lesson. And, and the lesson of skate skiing, if you've never done it, is you have to lean forward. Like if you don't lean to where you kind of fall, feel like you're going to fall, it's at that point that you begin sliding. And if you keep falling and stepping, you'll start moving forward. And then the next day, he brought us in and he said, okay, so what did we learn yesterday? And the lesson of that was you have to lean into the problem. If you stand looking at, at a trail in front of you and you're on skis, you will never move down that trail. But if you begin to lean into the problem, the solution's actually right there under your feet as you begin to take steps. And so he, he put us through six months of exercises like this. You know, rather than talking to us about how to sell things, he said, I want you to make something up and then I want you to get on the phone and try and sell it to people. And so we would literally like pull our cell phones out and call people like, you know, out of the phone book and try them, try to sell them our made up things. Like a cremation and an urn for their beloved cat. Yeah. You know, those types of things. And so it's, again, the, the lesson was like you learn by doing and by trying things much more effectively than you do by talking about things in theory. I just, I felt a stomach clench there when it was like, it's infinitely easier to learn the five principles of negotiation than it is to make one phone call to one real person and try to convince them to do something. Yeah, so, so probably my favorite example of Seth's style of teaching was when he came to us, the group of 12 of us, and said, I want you guys to take a week studying the decision-making process of groups. And he gave us each a different book about that, that talked about some issue that had to do with this, a group making a decision. And he said, I want you guys to come up with the de definitive list of the 12 mistakes that groups make when trying to make decisions. And so we worked on it for a week and we all came up with our different versions and we sat down together and we like argued and we fought and like we ended up breaking into two factions. Like there was one group that came up with this list of 12 and there was another group that came up with another list of 12 and someone tried to like broker a peace deal at the final thing. And at the, at the final moment, we like, like with literally a few minutes left to like when the assignment was due, we turn in this thing to Seth that's like some kind of bastardized conglomerate of our lists. And that was on Friday. And on Monday morning, what Seth did was came in and riffed for half an hour and walked us through the top decision-making mistakes using our process as the example. This is how group things happen. This is what, this is the way bias works. And like that, like that's brilliant. Right. And it's creative and it, you can't put it in a textbook. But like now, today, a decade later, when I'm in a group and we're beginning to like enter into confirmation bias, you better believe I'm able to look at it and be like, uh oh, this is, this is confirmation bias happening right in front of us. Yeah, because you've done something, then have it named. And I just think of the very funny moment we were sighting in our rifles earlier this week. And Luke gets out of the car and he's freezing and looks at Sam and he's like, I'm so cold. And Sam's like, oh, I'm wearing long underwear. And Luke goes, why didn't you tell me to wear long underwear? 
And Sam goes, there's just no other way to learn it. <laughs> Which is brilliant. And it brings me to... I'm sorry, Luke. The, the, I want to give a different answer to my what I would want to teach kids. I want to teach kids that it is okay to fail. That it is okay to make mistakes. That the way you succeed is by making lots and lots of mistakes. And, and my biggest gripe with the education system is that it is set up to make kids afraid to take risks and afraid to get things wrong. And one of the things that, you know, we sit around and talk about sometimes as a family is not just like, you know, what went well today. It's like, what, what didn't go well today? What did you try that didn't work? Because if we can get people not to be afraid to fail, then we can create risk takers. Then we can create people who go out and do things where they know the question is like, this, this might not work. Like, is this going to work or not? And that's actually a really good question to have when you're trying something is, well, what if this doesn't work? And that's okay. Yeah, it's so good. It, unfortunately, it seems like the school system plus whatever you do outside of that, which is most often like sporting events, end up being like two of the largest categories of validation for a person. Um, and I remember personal anecdote, it's... Freshman year of high school did really well in science and um, tested into the advanced classes um, and chose not to do them because one of the teachers hesitated and they were like, well, that's kind of hard. And it was like, I knew that a guaranteed A was better in this system than an advanced class that was maybe going to be a B or a C. And so chose the route of sort of the normal classes for the rest of my time in high school because... Uh, the risk taking wasn't going to be worth it because it was it was tied in even with the parents that I had even with the world that I had it was this place of like I knew that I mattered and that I was loved and cared for outside of my report card um, which <laughs> slowly got worse and, and worse and it's still nice to get A's and, and right? yeah it is right because yeah. that's what the system says I'd say like no there is a right or wrong question answer to this question and it's not that you were more right because you took a risk and learned something it's x plus y equals z like you didn't get z therefore you were wrong therefore make sure you say z next time um and it does end up with this (laughs) sort of conspiracy theory sounding model that you guys were throwing out here that seth gozman was talking about my brother-in-law super passionate about education because it is the world that most of us, either by choice or by necessity, put our children in for the majority of their life up to a point. And so what is put a value there, the systems there, like that's something that Susie and I have been wrestling with more and more of, I mean, it goes beyond how do you learn now to like, what's the environment you're going to be having them in? And yet I can't help escape that like, you can't just create the perfect brick and mortar that's teaching the perfect classes and not have anything else in the equation. Like if your kids know that what you value in them is finding things that they love and they're passionate about and that they can take risks because outside of their report card, they are valued and they have intelligence to offer to the world. Like 
that's going to be quite a remarkable person when they get their diploma that they end up just sort of losing track of six months later. Like, I, I don't know. It feels like that there are all of the people out there that I want to go. Like my brother-in-law made has made his career about getting into the education system because he wants to craft the classes and the curriculum to to be wholesome and to be something that's worthwhile for our kids. And I go like, yeah, like that totally, that does matter. And for all the parents out there that are homeschooling because the public school is really trying to not offend anyone anymore in any way, shape or form. So you kind of get this weird experience. It's even very different from the 10 years ago when I was in it. None of those answer the question. Because like with the question that Blaine and I are asking as we enter into this conversation is how do you become a person of substance at the end of the day? Mm. Right. So that's literally my question based on your story of going through high school, starting your own businesses in high school, not going on into the academy, that there was to a certain extent in view of this conversation less disentangling. But I do wonder... It's a long journey uh, from being the person who loves to get it right. And I've absolutely spent a massive portion of my life being the person of show me what the puzzle is so that I can do it right, voila, to becoming the person who actually likes the next challenge, likes the next unknown. And I wonder, even on... There's no level that's too basic. So, you know, listening to other podcasts is not too basic. Running is not too basic. But are there things that you would recommend that are helpful even to you in being someone who actually likes encountering the next problem? So this will feel a bit like a a self-plug. But one of the things I've been enjoying immensely recently is the Ansons podcast. And the reason is, is because you guys have done a phenomenal job and are increasingly doing a phenomenal job diving into a variety of subjects. You know, I mean, literally, like if we look back at the last month or so, we've got like Dr. James talking about healthcare. We've got, you know, a podcast on like foraging and hunting and cooking. Uh, you know, now we're talking about education. And, and so there's this developing a curiosity and encouraging and supporting curiosity in yourself and in your kids that I just think is immensely, immensely valuable. And so whatever that looks like, to say, how do I put myself in situations where I expose myself to things that I wouldn't normally be learning about? I think that's super, super valuable. That's huge. To answer my own question, which often happens here when you have such a small staff, but I thought about- You're saying I don't answer your questions? As you were talking. You answer your own question a lot is what I'm saying. And I answer my own question a lot. All right, don't let me into this. The reason that people don't know this, Sam, is that they don't see the writing of the question before the podcast. <laughs> they think that the question just appeared rather than being thought of and then you answered it. So you're not, you're not as safe as you think you are. When you're talking about this posture, I think of one of the helpful things of being a second, third generation person in this world has actually been seeing the value of 
being a student and somebody even naming to me, wow, that's so crazy that one of the older masculine men in your world would regularly say, give me an education to the point where you would joke about it. But that's never something manly that would have been said. And to go to help point out, we live in a world that values already having mastery, which is why I have that feeling pulling up to the auto mechanic going, what would be valuable and powerful in this moment is to already know and not even need to be here. Or going into the counselor's chair and going, what would be better would be to already know my problem. And to go, the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God, the value is actually being a student under the father, that it's actually a very masculine thing to show up as a new guy and go, wow, what the heck is going on here? When you do approach these new things, what you seem to be alluding to in those situations is this internal knowledge of being able to handle the unknown, which I would love to have in every situation and know that I don't yet. But I do know that things are going to be okay even when I don't have all of the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but that is the beauty of life with God. And that's the beauty of walking in a conversational intimacy with God is that we are able to walk into all types of situations and we do have access to, to answers. And, and I think like we, we tend to apply that to like the big things in life, but you can ask those questions where, whenever you find yourself in situations where you're not sure, like we, we, have, we have access to the creator of the universe and that makes it a lot safer to go into the unknown and to pursue areas where we're curious. 